Hi, welcome to BCI CalChat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have these guys here with me as well. Hi, Brian. Hello, Brad. Bob. Howdy. And Philip. Hey, Brad. So we've got a good crew in here to answer some of your questions today, and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time talking about different listener questions. We always appreciate when you send us those or topics for us to discuss. So we're going to talk about anaplasmosis, we'll talk about beta agonists, and talk a little bit about feeding some different types of byproduct feeds, some rice bran, not available everywhere, but certainly worth some discussion if it is available in your area, because some of those things will tie into other feeding practices. Before we get into those, guys, we're in the heart of the fall semester. All of us here work here at a college. I was just talking to some students this morning, and, and one of the things that I realized is there are many classes that I'm glad I don't have to take again. So yeah, That's always true. I, I wanted to find out from you guys which class, if I said you have to go back and take this one class again, you would say, I'm out. I'm not doing that one again. Which was your worst class that you would most dislike to go back? Are we going all the way back to undergrad? Yeah, or undergrad or, or graduate school, any any stage, or vet school. Second grade. Second grade, yeah. <laughs> We're not going that far oh, back. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and I feel bad kind of saying this because it, it would have been organic chemistry for me. And, and it's, it's nothing against organic chemistry. I think that's a fine science, and people should know that. But, man, I didn't like that class. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. That one popped into my head, too, that that was one that was just kind of difficult and, yeah, just was not real fun. Brian? Despite, despite what You're I You're a do. pharmacologist. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Isn't I, that's that all what, chemistry? I know, uh, yeah. But I like <laughs> other chemistry. Yeah, I, there's something abstract about boats and chairs and organic chemistry that I just, it just never, it just didn't click. Like no. I, yeah. yeah. No, I, I love biochemistry. That's I like cool. biochemistry. Bio, biochemistry is different. Nutrition. And that's just, that's cool. But so for those of yeah. you taking classes now, even, even organic chemistry, you, you'll still be able to look back on that in the future and, and kind of laugh. Hey, yeah. yeah. Hey. Because most of the classes were, most of the classes were reasonable as you go through. So let's, let's talk actual cattle stuff now, and I'm going to read this listener question to you, and I want to get you guys' uh, opinions and thoughts. And this is from a listener that said, I recently had a cow die suddenly, and then another one die the next week. The vet got there and, and determined that it was anaplasmosis. And so the question is, give me an idea of, A, what is anaplasmosis? B, how could I potentially treat it if I see it and see how am I going to prevent it. So let's start with what is it, Bob? So anaplasmosis is a, a disease of blood. In other words, there's a parasite that gets on red blood cells. The red blood cells are destroyed. So the animal basically doesn't have enough oxygen moving capacity. So they're pale or kind of yellow colored and they're not moving enough oxygen and it can kill them. Now, the interesting thing that, so it's it's moved from one cow to another by blood. So ticks and other insects, as well as human activities like using a needle or palpation sleeve, can move anaplasmosis organisms from one cow to another. Ticks are probably the most important. So that raises an interesting part of this disease is there's parts of the United States where this disease is pretty common. And most herds have been exposed and have some protection, and they'll occasionally lose a cow due to anaplasmosis, but kind of has some stability because they're constantly exposed. As, as the disease kind of moves to new areas, the cattle herds are completely susceptible. So we've certainly seen that here in Kansas a few years ago and continue to see where anaplasmosis is kind of encroaching into some new areas. And in that case, you might see two dead cows in two weeks. And that, that really gets your attention because it, it is certainly a disease that can cause death 
and otherwise healthy adult cattle. And there's not a long list of diseases that'll do that. So bloodborne takes out the red blood cells. They don't have enough oxygen supply transmitted by ticks or other mechanisms that we transfer blood like needles. Some areas have it a lot. Some areas don't see it very often. If you have a herd that's completely naive, never been exposed to it, you, you've got the chance of having higher death loss. Did we miss anything there, Brian, on the basics of anaplas? Uh, the only thing I would add to what Bob said is it's typically the older cows that are more affected. So younger animals do a better job of regenerating or making new red blood cells. So oftentimes if a if a younger animal, like I would say less than two, probably even a little younger than that, if they get an infection, they still, their immune system basically takes their red blood cells out of circulation. It recognizes that there's something wrong with them, breaks them down, but they're able to regenerate that fast enough where they can, they will get sick, they'll turn yellow, maybe look pale, but they're not they typically don't die at the same rate like an older cow because they they don't do that. They don't regenerate new blood cells fast enough. So, you know, given that listener question, if somebody had said two adult cows this time of year just kind of suddenly died, I would put anaplasmosis very, very high on my list. So, so great point because most time we talk about disease, we're talking about diseases that, oh, it affects the young more. But the older ones, you see less. Not in this case. Mm -hmm. you, you see it more in the older animals. The other thing that you brought up, and I don't know if Bob mentioned that or not, but time of year, because of the ticks, you often see this in September, October, depending on what part of the country you're in, yeah. because of the tick season. I, I've seen it basically every month of the year. But probably the bulk of the cases are now late summer, early fall, through, the, through all of fall is when we see the most cases, but that doesn't mean we can't see cases at other times. We're past early fall, my friend. Yeah, uh, that is we're, true. We're into late fall. We're into late fall. The leaves, with the wind recently, the leaves are pretty much yeah. gone. So tell me about preventing and treating. I'll do treatment because that's the easier one. I'll live prevention for Bob. So treatment, it, it's a parasite. It's, it's a little bit different kind of parasite. So we don't parasites in the GI tract. We don't really think antimicrobials, but because this is a bloodborne parasite, it, is, it actually is susceptible to some antimicrobials. And the one that we traditionally use to treat would be the tetracycline. So oxytetracycline, chlortetracycline through the feed, um, they have labels for treatment of anaplasmosis. And, and really that, that's about, there is, there's one other product that has a conditional approval for treatment of anaplasmosis, and that's, that's enrofloxacin or Batril. And if you're treating anaplasmosis with Batril, you, there's a, it's a special product. You have to use the Batril 100. It's called CA, which stands for conditional approval. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw in on treatment, just a couple things. One, we're treating to get rid of that parasite that's in the red blood cells, which doesn't make the symptoms go away. So even if I magically killed it all, and I won't right away, but even if I magically killed it all, the clinical signs are due to the fact that they have a low red blood cell count. So it is going to take them a while to recover until their body gets to that point. The, other, the corollary to that is by the time we see them sick clinically, this has been going on for a while, which is right. why we often see it in the fall and, and later. So and, tre and treatment is, I would say, so-so effective. There's some evidence out there that we might actually be seeing some resistance to tetracyclines in these parasites as well. So you know, if even if you're a herd that's used to seeing anaplasmosis, if you think that clinical response isn't as good as it has been in the past, definitely get your veterinarian involved. Yeah, and I think get it, get involved so that because the earlier we diagnose these, the better. And our treatment, 
just like we said, it's going to may, even if it does take care of the parasite, it doesn't fix the blood problem, which is why we don't always see those cows respond all that well. Right. Bob, tell us how to prevent this. Oh, you gave me the tough one. And, and the reason it's tough is, well, historically, we have used tetracycline in the feed or in a mineral mix to control anaplasmosis. And there's some evidence that there's some efficacy there, but it's certainly not as good as we would like. And probably because, particularly with tetracycline in the mineral, cows don't do daily intake, consistent intake across the herd. There's, there's probably some cows that don't eat any mineral and some that eat a lot. The way the pharmacologists want the drug administered is, you know, same dose every day, keep the blood levels high, you know, and that doesn't happen. Therefore, even though theoretically I could feed tetracycline and prevent this disease, when we try to apply it in the field, it works probably some, but we certainly have breakthroughs and we certainly have some problems. The other thing is that requires a veterinary feed directive, a VFD, with your veterinarian to set that up and to, to get that in place. Vaccines is the other option that we have. And when I was first in veterinary practice, we had a commercially available anaplasmosis vaccine. The problem was it would actually kill calves occasionally because of the nuances of a bloodborne parasite and you try to kill that and you end up killing the red blood cells of the calves. And so that product was taken off the market. And we've never really fully returned a proven effective vaccine that doesn't have problems. There's a conditionally licensed vaccine that's, that your state veterinarian can give you approval for. The evidence on how much it prevents disease is not very strong uh, one way or the other. There's some really active research work done here, being done here at K-State trying to develop anaplasmosis vaccine, kind of two couple of different strategies that are being looked at. So I'm hopeful that maybe in the future, but this is a disease that's been very difficult to build effective vaccines that were safe to use in animals. And so I'm hope I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that we'll have some things in the future, but right now prevention is, is hard. Well, and, and the other thing, you know, we talk about biosecurity a lot on this podcast and we say, you know, that's a good way to keep disease out of your herd, but it's impossible to keep ticks out of your, right? You, you can't build fences. That ticks are really good fence. They're, they're really good at getting through fences. That's right. And so, you know, that it kind of takes away one of the, one of the three things we typically think when we talk about preventing other diseases, we say, well, good biosecurity. There really is no way to do that. And especially if you're on that geographical kind of transition zone between where it's it's, it's a disease that's been endemic and then a place where it hasn't been seen, that's where we see these these kinds of cases pop up. So there are some things we can do for control, though, not, not control of ticks. And again, ticks, not only are they hard to keep out, but they're hard to have anything to treat to get rid of those. You mentioned some other areas, but one of the things that we think about is how am I managing the type of cattle that I import, right? Am I importing cattle from a naive herd into my area where we've had this disease for a while, or vice versa, right? I wouldn't recommend that. So to be clear, that's one of the things we can do is if you know you're in an area that has anaplasmosis, I would only get replacement animals from an area that has anaplasmosis. Yep. I would not bring in naive animals. Because naive is not good in this case. And we don't have a great way to stimulate immunity with a commercially available vaccine. And Brian said, and we can't keep the disease necessarily out. So you have to manage it. And, and I think one of the key things in these herds is thinking about how do I monitor and, and manage early in the process? Because the sooner I intervene, the better off I am. And you're going to have these on and off. I practiced in an anaplasmosis endemic area or the disease was present and had been there for a while. 
and we'd see cases every year. So I, I think that's a, a great example. Thank you guys for going through that. I, I do want to keep moving so we can get to some of our other listener questions. One of the other questions was about beta agonists and beta agonists, I'll let you guys describe, but the question was really about how does the use of beta agonists affect some of our trade of beef with external countries? And are there people that are not using beta agonists so that they can get into certain trade markets? Before I get to the trade part, Brian, I'm going to ask you, tell us a little bit about what are beta agonists, what do they do, and why are we using them? So beta agonists are, they're, they're drug products in food production. They're, they're labeled for what we call production claims. So increased growth, increased rate of gain, uh, improved feed efficiency. And I guess probably the, the most basic explanation of how beta agonists work are they preferentially partition to lean muscle. So they, they make that carcass more at a higher percentage of lean muscle. And, and again, these are, these are feed additives that we're using to improve, improve weight gain or increase feed efficiency. And typically used only at the end of the feeding period for a relatively short. Yes, that time. is. Yep. And so most of them I think are labeled for like the last 28 to 42 days or something like that. And again, because they're feed additives, we we have to follow those instructions explicitly. So, so yeah, this is the very this is, end of the feeding period. This is not something uh, – because we've talked about other feed additives like ionophores, for example, which improve efficiency. And we feed those often and many times throughout much of the life of the cattle. That's not the case with beta agonists where we're only feeding them the last whatever period of time is on the label for that particular product. Bob, did you have something to add? No, I was just going to say, it's, it's really only the last 30 days to six weeks. And then, so cow-calf guys aren't really going to utilize this product. It was, it's just done at the feedlot phase. So, Philip, as we think as we think about those beta agonists, and we've talked about some of the reasons, and essentially, Brian talked about, we're going to add that lean muscle mass, which is, which is important. Any other things you want to add on the beta agonist? And how does this potentially tie into some of our trade? Those products are, are pr- approved for use in the U.S., but they're not necessarily approved for use in other countries. And so when we go to export beef to those countries, that becomes an issue. And particularly the question was, was referencing China. And about 15 years ago or so, China stopped all beef imports from the U.S. And just recently, in the last five years, we've got that market back open. But there is a specific condition that ractopamine cannot be used in those cattle that are marketed to China. So, so it's a trade condition. So as the question alluded to, are there people not using it? Well, if you're planning to export to China, then yes. And we, we have cattle in the U.S. that are, depending on how they're labeled, they don't get any hormones, they don't get any antibiotics, they don't get any of specific agents that we provide, even though those things are approved here in the U.S. So as that changes, we know we've had more and more exports to other countries outside of the U.S. in our beef production. So that's part of the impact. Yeah. And particularly with the export, we've actually had some conversations with some some people in the beef industry about this. And the way that, I know I said I didn't like organic chemistry at the beginning of the podcast, but the, the way that we find these residues is is a chemical method, right? And so what what we found is that the method that they use to detect ractopamine, all, all the chemistry methods that we use anymore are very, very sensitive. But this one includes kind of an extra step at the beginning. It actually increases the sensitivity of our ability to detect ractopamine 
quite a bit. And so we're, we're talking about very, very low concentrations. Nanograms is a really small amount, but that's what we're talking about. And so, yeah, go ahead. So when you say the, the sensitivity, you're, you're talking about you can detect a much lower amount of the drug in the meat than we were able to in years past or in any tissue that we're testing. Well, it's a different method. So within what we would typically find here, this, because of this extra step, they're finding concentrations that we wouldn't find because the, it makes it that much more sensitive to the drug. So one of the issues here is because it's so much more sensitive, even even feed contamination. So using the same feed truck to feed non-beta agonist and, and beta agonist cattle probably doesn't work. Like that much carryover of feed is probably enough to make a carcass for trade, not a, not a tradable carcass, right? Like that meat product would not be approved if it was detected on import. So what you guys are saying, and, and I'm going to go back to the listener question a little bit, in that they said, are, are people feeding less of this? And you're saying, well, for certain export markets, you're not going to feed any of it. And then are we feeding less of it overall as a nation? Well, if we look back not very far in the recent past, we were feeding none of it, and now we're feeding some of it at label requirements. And I think we're we're coming to those different levels. And I I, I don't we don't see a big change or a big shift, but people are going to respond to the market and where the market incentives are. There's some trade offs in feeding it. I get some more efficiency, but if I hit this export market, I may get this. So you have to have to figure out those those trade offs. Nice of us to talk about an economic talking topic when Dustin's not here. Exactly. That, that'll show him for not. I, I feel like there was less economist weigh in on this. So <laughs> he'll he'll have to he'll have to weigh in next week. Well I'm gonna go to the our nutritionist and ask this question because this is from a listener and I think this is a good question. I'm gonna kind of kind of read as they go through. Has this producer has a chance to pick up some rice bran rice bran on backhauls. It's relatively cheap at a hundred dollars a ton delivered in bulk tote bags. The only nutritional information is it's 12% protein, 12% crude fat, and 12% fiber. No experience feeding this. What advice would you give? Would like to feed it to uh, supplement as prairie hay feeding it to cows. So rice bran is a, a byproduct from the rice milling industry for preparing rice for human consumption. And you think about it as a byproduct versus a co-product. So a co-product, we use that term where the manufacturer has some specs that they try to meet on with that product. A byproduct is really something that they have that has some value, but they just want to get rid of it. They don't want to put any extra cost into that, and they just want to get rid of it for whatever value it has. And the problem with that is the nutritional con uh, content of that product varies a lot because they don't really put any effort into maintaining a certain quality. The issue with rice bran is that it is highly variable and particularly with the fat level and that becomes a problem because for two reasons one if we get a batch that has a really high fat level and we get our total fat in the diet up above seven percent or so it will decrease feed intake and that's in feedlot cattle in uh, hay-fed cattle, it's going to decrease feed intake at a lower level than that. And if we get a high level above about 5%, it negatively affects forage digestion. And so we have a negative impact on the major component of our beef cow diet. And what we're trying to use effectively and efficiently is that cheap forage. So my advice for using it is to make sure that you are testing 
each batch that you get because it can be so highly variable that if you've got a diet formulated for specific content, then it may change widely. Yeah, because I actually, and I, I was just looking as you were talking, I didn't read well here because I skipped words. And the, what the question actually says is it's a minimum 12% protein, a minimum 12% fat, and a max of 12% fiber, which means just what you're saying is in this instance, I shouldn't, I should not read that as 12%, 12%, 12%. I should say, hey, this could be variable. And you're telling me it's going to be highly variable in many cases. So understand what you're getting into. Because if I do something that 90%, 95% of their diets, hey, and if I do something to upset their digestibility or intake of that, hey, I may have made a mistake that did not save me money in the long term. All right, well, I have a question. So so rice bran has some feed at, feed attributes that make it a, at least a, a feed to look at. But there's other byproducts of, of rice milling. And I know of a byproduct called rice holes. Is rice holes similar or is it pretty different? Uh, rice holes is quite different. And so it's a different part of the rice grain. And so, but it has very little nutritional value. It's very low protein. It has very low digestibility. So it has very low energy content um, to the animal. And so it's really just a filler um, that can be used in different situations in feed milling and, and manufacturing and stuff. But it's not something that I would want to buy as a commodity and use as a supplement to any animals. Well, it, it's a little bit inconvenient that rice bran is a high protein high energy dense feed additive or feeds product and rice hulls are very low protein low energy and i darn well better make sure i know which one i'm talking about yes you don't want to get those two confused yeah and when you said testing so would you just send this off to a, a feed analysis lab or is there anything specific that you'd be looking for you mentioned fat and the protein and that there's variability how would you handle that part yeah i'd want to send a sample off to a testing lab the lab is going to automatically check for protein ndf adf which are the fiber fractions they're probably not going to check fat unless you specifically ask for it so you would need to specifically ask for a, a fat crude fat um, analysis Cause, so because fat's what you're concerned about yes well in this question i'm going to go back to this question specifically so they said delivered in bulk tote bags so how do we know which ones are the same batch? How, I mean, do we need to test every, I don't know how large the bags are, but should we test every bag? Um, I don't know. The bags, bulk tote bags, probably around a ton okay. would be my guess. And so I probably need to talk to the plant where you're getting them. How, how many of those bags do they fill out of a batch of processing? How frequently are you picking it up? Um, you know, those types of things to get an idea of, how uh, many of those bags or how often you need to test. And good, good discussion there. And I think with any of those, whether it's a byproduct or a co-product, know what you're getting and at least identify, is there a lot of batch-to-batch -batch variability? Because there are some other byproducts that are that way as well. You have some batch-to-batch -batch variability. Uh, and if so, what testing am I going to do? So great summary today on those. And we Always appreciate those listener questions or areas for us to discuss. As always, if you've got a good one, you can send it to us at bci.ksu.edu. At